Greetings, Wilkinson here. Today my guest is Craig Chester. Who's he, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. Let's see, he's a lot of things. He's an actor. He's a TV writer. He's a screenwriter. He's an author. You're on your, what, third book? Yeah. Third right, book. Right. Done some directing, a little bit of producing, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, Craig, say hi to my people. Hi, people. Okay, so you're here. Let's hear a little bit about your story. You're gay. We talked earlier when you arrived. You grew up in Texas. You had an interesting family dynamic going on. So tell me some of that. I would tell my people about that. Let's talk about it. And then uh, let's hear about your coming out experience. Okay. Well, I grew up in, I grew up in um, Texas and outside of Dallas. And my, um, my, my family was, my dad was um, in a rock band. Um, he was in a band called Whiskey. He was the lead singer and, and played the bass and had tattoos and was really kind of like badass. And my mom was a um, born again Christian. Um, how, how did they meet? Well, when they met, she wasn't, when they, when they met, she wasn't religious. She got okay. saved like while they were married. Okay. And so I, so she was like, you know, she was really into that. And so I grew up with like these two sort of warring, you know, points of view. My dad, my mom was trying to get me to be more like Jesus, you know, more passive and like right. kind. And my dad was trying to get me to be more of a badass and tough. Who so, <laughs> It depends on what time of my life you're. Okay. You're looking at, but basically those two those those two parenting styles say a lot about me, and and uh, to this day I'm either one or the other. But so um I yeah that's I grew up in Texas, and then I I came I was really religious in high school, went to church, was involved in youth group, was you know trying to speak in tongues and be cool, and and then I moved. So to, was this like Pentecostal Christian? It was non denominational, charismatic, born okay. Christian. So yeah, it was like that. We had exorcisms in our church and. And book, you know, we burned books. We burned the Wizard of Oz. Um, wow, it, it that's evil witchcraft. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it was very like it was very, you know, sort of like today, like so. Florida. Uh, I kind of I come from a similar background, but I call that Baptocostal. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good just one. Never... Pull it all together and throw it into the mix. <laughs> anyway, or just call it crazy. So you easy. were in high school and you were. I was, yeah, I was really religious and, and, um, I, and then I got into drama and there were like openly gay kids in drama and I was scandalized by that. And, but, um, I, did you know you were attracted to men at that point or I not? did. And I thought if I was, if I thought if I did, you know, missionary work and I'm, you know, I would be like forgiven for my lustful thoughts about the other right. kids in, in, in locker room. But, but, um, and then I fell in love with a boy and, and when I was 16 and then that sort of changed everything. I was like, I was like, this isn't wrong. So I felt it was felt very like natural. I was sort of like a, had my first like teenage crush, right? And so I just like you know I I just repressed it, and then I moved to New York when I was nineteen. And, uh oh, <laughs> cats out of the bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I remember the date I lost my virginity. It was February eighth, nineteen eighty five. Really, by February what? No, February eighth, nineteen eighty five. Okay. Because that wound up being my boyfriend. That was our our anniversary. I became like I was a serial monogamist. I think I told you earlier too. Right, right. So I'm I, so yeah, it was like you know. And then I came out, in like you know, in 1985 in New York City. I moved there from Texas when I was 19. It was like not a great time to be coming out as gay and right. in New York City. The whole AIDS thing was like exploding. So I, so I came out officially to my mom. I I did a movie called Swoon about Leopold and Loeb, and on um, that movie. I did a lot of publicity around it about, you know, being, I came out with that film. I was an openly gay actor from the inception of my career. And so I came out to my mother, like basically around the press around that film. Like I knew there was going to be articles coming out about me being gay. So we were in like a JC Penney and I ended up in the mall in Louisville, Texas. Classy. Yeah. <laughs> 
And she You could have done it in a Nordstrom commercial. So I came out in a JC Penney's and then we oh. went and we went into the food court and we had a Diet Coke and we talked about she asked me questions. She's like, you know, always asked me about you know, back then it was like it was such a there wasn't a lot of it was a lot of ignorance around the subject. So Were you afraid that you would get AIDS and die? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was too. I mean it was right. it was such a it was such a I think it I think that it kind of got glossed over psychologically, but that was a lot to deal with as a young person, you know, coming into their sexuality at that time. Right. So you're in JCPenney's. What department? Betting. You're in bed. Oh, how appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> because I had a roommate. I had a roommate named, I had a boyfriend named Brian, and she knew I lived with him. And so she was sure we had one queen bed. So she was passing through on her way to like Ireland to go to like, to like a, she won a contest to go to, to Ireland. She was with my dad. So they stayed with us in, in New York City, and she was like looking at these duvets, you know, in, in the, and back then there was like when the Santa Fe look was really right. fashionable, like the whole like New Mexico. Right. So we're looking at the bedspread, and she's like, Do you think Brian would like this bedspread? And then she looked at me, and I was like, <gasps> The moment of, you know, we're sharing a bed. And so I said, Wait, did she think you'd have twin beds or something like that? Or no, she saw we had slept in the same bed. So oh, she, she did. Yeah, when she came through on her way to Ireland. So she, okay. She planned, she sort of fished and she gave me like an opportunity. I said, I said, yeah, we sleep in the same bed. <laughs> I think he would like this one. So she, and we went to the good court and we talked about it and it was fine. But, but, um, you know. So it, did you say I'm gay? Yeah. And yeah. so she, with her religious background, what was her response? I think back then she just was like worried about, she wasn't as religious at that point, but she was more just worried about what I, she just, there were, she didn't know there were other gay people in the world. So she came to Sundance, the Sundance Film Festival with me. And I didn't either. When I was, when I was in, growing up in Texas and I realized I was gay and I had this crush, I didn't know there were other gay people in the world. I didn't, there was no like Ellen DeGeneres. There was like nothing. I'm so, the only gay in town. Yeah. I'm in Texas. I mean, I met some other guy. And, and so that isolation is people don't understand what that was like. Back and that then. was pre-internet. Pre-internet, pre everything. There was no right. movies or nothing I had ever seen. So I, I was very sheltered in my life in Texas. So, so yeah, so we came, so then the movie Swoon came out and went, went to Sundance. We went to Sundance, I went to Sundance, so brought her with me. And then now you were an actor in that, right? I was an actor. You, yeah. Were you involved in other aspects of it or just acting? No, just, yeah, just an actor. You were one yeah. of the leads. Yeah. I played Nathan Leopold. And you're one of the killers. Yes. Gay killer. Gay killer. How'd you, how'd you end up getting that role? I, Moved to New York. I wanted to just do theater. I didn't have any interest in doing film, but but I did a play with John Woodward that she wrote and produced and directed, and I had the lead in this play. And I I wasn't very good on stage. I could never, like I could never be loud enough for the back room. <laughs> right. So I during and it was a great experience. I got to meet her and got to meet her and Paul Newman. So all the people in the back row wanted their money back. <laughs> they, just, they kept talking to you about it. Yeah, yeah. It just okay. the harder I pushed to read, the worse I was. Wow. So I so jo Joanne was like, you know, you should pursue film acting because you're like, you've got a really nice naturalistic quality in your acting, but not for the theater. And and I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in the closet because I didn't think you could be openly gay and be in movies and right. And, and I didn't want to, back then, you know, it was like also the AIDS activism was all silence equals death. And I was very politicized. I didn't want to be in the closet. So she was like, you know, well, why do you have to be? And she was the first person to challenge me on that concept. So she she encouraged me to go on some auditions. I went on like three auditions. And I one of those auditions was an open call for Swoon, which I, which I saw in Backstage Magazine. And I went to this open call. There were hundreds of guys there. I auditioned for, I think, six months. They kept calling me back in. I... 
they're pairing me up with all these different actors. It was like, it was it about Leopold and Loeb, these two guys. What I'm forgetting what what time period did this was 1990. No, but what time? Did, oh, it, it took place in 1924. 24. That's what I thought. I thought maybe it was 30s, but 20s. Okay. Yeah. So I um I did this. Uh, so I, I just kept auditioning for it. And I finally got cast in it. And, uh, and then that's how I got my first movie role. And it was just, just like, you know, I just was in the right place at the right time. But, and then I was, I was openly gay from, you know, the inception of my career. And so when we went to Sundance, I brought my mom with me to, you know, then that year at Sundance was like the big queer cinema year. There were all these important seminal queer, new, the new queer cinema was kind of born that year at that, at that festival. And my mom was there and she was like, there are gay people. She was sort of shocked. Like there's so many, it's okay. It's fine. Everybody's fine. She just had never seen that it was like there was a whole there were there was a world in which the, everything right. was cool and so right. I think it just was like you know lack of she just didn't know and well with your father being in the band didn't were some of those people gay no my grandma my grandma's name was gay <laughs> <laughs> oh my gay Stru, Galen Struble she um dated Merle Haggard um you know the country western singer so yeah. she used to ride around in honky tonks with to go to honky tonks in this pickup truck and. She knew about gay people, and she was. She said to me, "You're gay." When I was nineteen, so she she knew. But so like she you, said they'd be before you came out to your mother. Yeah, she did. Wow. Yeah, she's like, "I've known you were gay since I saw you throw a ball." <laughs> <laughs> well, me when I grew up, the, my nickname was Chicken Arm. Chicken Arm, really? Chicken arm, yeah. Oh, that's the boy's name would be Chicken Arm because I could throw a ball. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you had like a little little wing there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a that was that's a, cute. Where did you grow up? Buffalo, New York. Okay. That was bad. Anyway, moving on to your story. So you did that first film. Yeah. So that was, um, I, my coming out was almost always, my, my sexuality has always been like a huge part of like my career in a way. It's like, wait, wait, wait. What about your father? We did it. My dad was never, he was always fine with it. He never had a, he was just. Did you come out to him after you found your father? Did you take him to like Woolworths or what? No, we just, I don't even remember. It wasn't, when we talked about it, it wasn't like. I don't think it was sort of an afterthought. My dad was the so he was the least judgmental person. He was really, really, really accepting. Yeah, very open minded, right. and just like always about you know, he just he was he was fine with it. I think I think sometimes mothers and their gay sons have a harder time. You know, there's something about that dynamic that's very it's very special, but it's also very you know they. My dad was fine with it. So cool. Yeah. Do you have uh, siblings? I have a sister, Kim, who's five years younger than me. And that's it, just the two of us. Did you come out to her? I did. She, I mean, no, she was like, you know, whatever she, she already knew, but, right. and she, she knew from we were, I think when I was in high school, but, but, um, she's also a lesbian. Oh, I mean, not also, she is a lesbian. I'm not a lesbian, but she, uh, so after I came out, there was all this pressure on her to sort of like stay in the closet because she, I wasn't going to be the one to give my family, you know, whatever the traditional conservative conventional life right so she was like had to get married and and play that part but then it made it actually harder for her to come out because she was all the pressure was on her to have this to give this to give my family like this heteronormative thing and then she right. so then she came out and i was actually shocked when she came out i didn't i never oh, saw you that didn't come know? no no never no she didn't drive a pickup truck <laughs> no no she was she was like i guess a, like a lipstick lesbian so oh yeah I don't think they called them that anymore. <laughs> she was very familiar with them. Are like lipstick, I'm getting confused. Are they lipstick lesbians? Are they into like the U-Haul thing as well or not? 
I mean, she probably she did have you all on a speed dial. I mean, but we both were both we both were always having boyfriends and girlfriends, and you know, um, we're always serial monogamous. So, hmm. where does she live now? She lives in Florida. Florida, I know. Lesbian in Florida. Thoughts and prayers. Be, that must be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's not. Yeah. Are your parents still with us? Um, my dad passed away in 2020, um, in March of 2020. And my mom is still with us. Yeah. She's in Florida as well with my sister. Okay. All right. So let's swing back to your career then. So swoon, then what? Um, then I just sort of, I, I, um, I got an agent and I, you know, at Sundance and I, I signed with William Morris and, and then I, um, I, I That's suddenly, pretty good for a new kid on the block. Isn't yeah, it? I was like yeah. 25. And, yeah. And so I had this very, I had this, and I got good, good reviews and I, I was up for, I'm nominated for a Spirit Award for Best Actor. So I had like, you know, when you're a young actor and you're starting out, I thought it was sort of like, I had like sort of the most ideal launch you could have. Um, but I was also openly gay. I was like 1992. So I, I, um, that was like a major complication <laughs> in the whole thing. Because back then there was really like Harvey Firestein and then I didn't really, you know, there wasn't a lot of, there were a lot of role models. So I, I remember that time being very, feeling very um, nervous and like, am I blowing it? Like, and there's all this great stuff, but maybe I'm sabotaging myself. And there were members of my, my family that were really worried. My mom and my dad were worried about me because they, they knew that it's a homophobic world. And, and here I was coming out in, in a very splashy way. So I, I'm sort of making it up as I went along, but it, that, that led to like, you know, all these great opportunities too, where I got to meet, you know, my heroes like Martin Scorsese and Mike Nichols and all of the the filmmakers that I, that I, I envied and admired. And so it was a great time because I got to meet, I was, I was really shaped by like, you know, pe older people that, um, like Joanne Woodward and people like that, that, that really mentored me. I didn't know at the time that was what was happening, but, but I see it now. And so I, I just, I feel very, you know, I had a really good foundation, but I also was in this, I was, you know, I dealt with a lot of homophobia. So you're doing the acting. When did you switch? You said you earlier when we were talking, you said that you did a lot of uh, TV writing. When did that come in? Um, I wrote a book. Well, I got asked to, because I was an open actor. I had, that was sort of like what that was like, you know, an unusual. So I got asked by St. Martin's press to write a, a memoir about being gay in Hollywood. Oh, and I had a column, I think, in Genre Magazine at the time. I was sort of having a Carrie Bradshaw moment. And I was writing about my dating life and all that, everything about me. And now it's called posting. <laughs> but back then, right. you, we were professionals, you know. We <laughs> we, um, we did it. So I had a column for like a couple of years in Genre. And I and it was a great experience. It got me. I learned how to sort of do that. But I wrote this. So I, they, I got this book deal before I even had a book. So I had to get an agent. And I wrote some sample chapters and... And so the original idea of the book, which was about being gay in Hollywood and about being openly gay and all of the, what I, what I saw, the experiences I had dealing with homophobia, and there were so many crazy, so many crazy things that happened to me just with that, like just the challenges of like be, being an openly gay actor and, and going up for gay roles that were like what few there were, even though I wasn't, I was never like gay enough to play like the flaming guys. And I was right. always never straight enough to play the macho straight guys. I carved out my own niche in like, you know, independent films and, and Sundance movies. But, but I wrote this book, you know, take on it was going to be um, about my career. But then I told them, I said, I also have this unusual family and, you know, love the stuff we've talked about. So it sort of expanded and became like more well-rounded well about my life, like a real memoir. And there's a few chapters about working in the industry, but it's a lot about my family and about 
growing up gay and stuff like that. And then that, as a result of that, because of my book, my um, Don Roos and Dan Bukatinsky and Lisa Kudrow have a production company had, and they um, they wanted they read my book, my book wound up in their lap, and they wanted to adapt my book into a series, you know, for television. This what is was it, the name of the book? Why the Long Face? Why the Long Face? Okay. You know, I talked to them on the phone. I flew out to LA and met them in New York, and and we worked on developing this series. And it was about um, uh, my family, about my mom and my dad. It was, it was called Rapture, and it's about a woman who's a born-again Christian, married to a rock and roll dude who's not saved, and you know, and her trying to save her family before the rapture comes in. Like that's what the premise for the pilot was. And in, the, in this that, show, that, that movie was made, right? No, it was a, it was a series. Oh, a series. It never got there, made. There's a movie named Rapture. There's a movie with Mimi okay. Rogers. That's that's right. That's what I was. That was quite a ways that's before that. It. No, okay. this is like in 2009. Okay, so I moved to LA. I sweet Lisa and Don and I and Dan and I pitched it to HBO and Showtime, and Showtime bought it, and and so I wrote my first TV pilot. I adapted my book into a TV pilot. I got an agent. I signed with CAA, and I and I moved to LA, and I became a TV writer. It was like that easy. Boom. And you said that that TV show was never made then? No, the pilot never got made. And we, the guy, Bob Greenblatt, who ran Showtime, left the network to go to NBC. So he left for it right after, right before mine was like next up in the pipeline. So it's called a regime change and it happens all wow. the time. I didn't know that at the time. But oh, really? Yeah, there was a regime change. So um, so it didn't get made. But then I started writing pilots for other networks like NBC and E and um uh universal and stuff like that and so i wrote i wrote a lot of pilots that were never made and um and then i got um a job writing on true blood um hbo show how was that that was like a dream perfect job a dream job that was like the probably like i everybody i worked on worked with on that show i i love the actors that's they're so dear to me still the whole crew everybody on that show is like just like amazing and hbo gives you like a lot of freedom so i could just write whatever I wanted. There's no censorship at all. Or, really? Yeah. So I just like, I mean, it was also the show was ending. So like there was sort of like whatever we're focused on Game of Thrones right now. But I, yeah, I had like, you know, really fun, you know, I could, my, one of my episodes, there's a Ted Cruz fundraiser and at the George Bush library in Dallas, I said it where I grew up and, and uh, the Yakuza come in and they shoot up a bunch of Republicans. And there was this whole scandal about, you know, I, about that episode that you know made the news <laughs> oh, but i mean it just would be like can i have the yakuza the cohen and she, yeah sure like the hbo gives you so much freedom right. so you get really used to that you know it's sort of like it spoils you and um so and so that was like that was such a great job what other uh tv writing did you do um i wrote on a show called insatiable from netflix um, um which was on for two seasons and then i wrote three i produced wrote and produced three episodes three seasons sorry of the big gay sketch show on logo which was um sort of like you know rosie o'donnell produced it she was our executive producer and um it was on logo kate mckinnon was her first sort of big thing and for saturday Night live and and billy eichner was my office mate and oh, really? yeah he was my we shared an office third season oh. did you like that do you like the bros movie or what'd you think of it i liked it yeah i liked it it's very much like it reminds me a lot of it's a it's a good double feature with adam and steve i think i feel like do you want to jump to Adam and Steve, or do you want to keep talking about your other stuff? Oh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> was Adam and Steve your first? So you did a lot on that. So you were a writer, the director, yeah, and one of the main actors. I played Adam, yeah. Where'd you come up with the idea for that? Because I was in so many queer films. I, I traveled. I spent most of the 90s <clears throat> going to, to gay film festivals. Mm -hmm. 
like all over the world, like all over the country and all over the world. So I was always standing on stage in front of a gay audience, and it was usually gay couples that would say to me, when are they going to make a movie about us? You know, And almost all of my roles had been like, you know, I played a child killer, I played like a drug addict who's in the beginning beaten up and frisk, I played like a guy whose lover died. So all of my, and I was always playing these really tortured guys and highly dramatic characters, which was great. And they were all really different. They were all gay, but they were all very unique. Right. And so I, I'd never done a com. I I was in Kiss Me Guido. I got to play a, a sort of flaming drag queen best friend, and I and I love doing comedy. But it's you only- had, did your blonde hair? I had bleach blonde hair. Yeah, okay, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> and so I I like um I like your flaming red hair today. That's that's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. He doesn't have red hair. I was I'm uh, going through a Lucy phase. You know, it's, wow, the so ball. Yeah. yeah, your hair is longer though. It's, <laughs> it's growing. It's growing. What's it that? It is growing. Fun? I just like, I don't know, I, I'm just like, I hate, I don't know, I'm just like, I'm just letting myself go, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So back to uh, Adam and Steve. So I always played these torturous, tortured guys. And I, and I, when I did Kiss Me Widow, I loved doing comedy. And I am in real life, I'm a very funny person, but I never got to portray that in my acting career. So I wrote, I wanted to write, make a movie that was about a gay couple, like two guys meeting and having and falling in love something that you didn't see that much of back then. And uh, and so I came up with the idea that way about doing uh, romantic comedy. And and, and then, like my friends, like Parker Posey was like, I want to play a lady who <laughs> who like is a stand-up comic and laughs at her own jokes on stage. And and um, so it just like my friends, it was back then you could kind of like get your friends together and make a movie, you know, that, that's- Now, did, did she play both parts? Like she was- did she have a fat suit? In yeah, it? she did. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really. But the, when I first watched that, I didn't catch that right away. No, she. She's she, so different. I mean, it's so. The first time I saw her in that in that that suit, I, they had a test day, you know, to see how it looked like. Right. I literally fell on the ground laughing. <laughs> fell down <laughs> on the ground. Um. It was really. It was such a good fat suit, and she also. But it was also her performance. Like she. She had a persona, a personality that was that was as good as the that suit, which was what made it work. But plus, it was goth that adds an element. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it's weird. Super typical goth girl. Uh, but um, so your yeah. first, I'll just say, the episode happens with your other character. Did that happen? Was that a at your house in the in the movie? Or I forget where it took place. It's when they have their first disastrous first date. Right. That was in my apartment that in mean, yeah in Brooklyn. So you gotta watch the movie, people. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> that is so gross. Yeah. Horrible thing happens that traumatizes both of them basically for the rest of their lives. What what was the drug that you were taking in the movie? We're doing Coke. Yeah. So and they why would it be cut with baby because that was actually a, a thing i don't know if it's still the thing back then that was okay. i've never really <laughs> that makes that. no sense to it me. doesn't make any sense but it does it did happen so i'm not sure why they would do that maybe it's not maybe it's a myth but i i just know that i well who wants that to happen <laughs> i mean it seems like a bad business model right it is yeah it's not good like you're not gonna re- repeat customers but they put that fentanyl way. in it now so like what's a that's little bit of labor what's right. a little bit labor baby laxative <laughs> so you're that's i'm gonna swing back to your book for a minute which is why the long face yeah what was that all about there's there's a long face episode right? oh i yeah we skipped that 
I had um I grew up with a I mean I looked like a normal kid and then um when I was like sixteen the bones on my face started to grow my lower jaw started to grow deformed like grow down so um I had um when I was eighteen and the bones stopped growing I had like a year's worth of operations and um and they to put the you know it was like a whole complicated surgery I had um and for like eight weeks my jaw was wired shut you know with metal wires and I was on a liquid diet that's when my grandma was like I know you're gay since you I saw you throw a ball. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't talk back. I she she outed me, and I could just sit there and stare at her, because my jaw was wired shut. So I, my a big part of my life too has been like just ongoing dental dramas. Like you know, I have a lot of karma in that area, <laughs> jaw surgeries, and I'm about to have another one. But but it's in um it's so I I was for like a year. I had like I got a new chin, and I got um and I and I looked different. And when it when it was done, I went to the mall. I saw friends from high school and no one, people didn't recognize me. I looked totally different. My teeth were straight. Wow. I, I had like a, the kids used to call me sock puppet in high school because I had no chin. I had no lower chin. Wow. And so they took a piece off a bone. They put it on here, the, the chin, the tip. And that's like, that's like wired on now. And so, yeah, I was, I had, I, from 18 to 19, I lost a year just recovering from surgeries and laying on the couch and watching a lot of MTV. Yeah. And I moved to New York and I had a new face. No one, no one knew that I didn't that I had a new face and I was handsome and, and suddenly I was in high school drama. I was always playing like the, you know, like the ogre, like the, you know, like I was playing like the weird looking scary guy, but then, or the nerdy weird guy. But then when I, after my face surgery, I, I was like suddenly, you know, playing boyfriends and acting classes. And I, and I, I really had the personality of like a, of a guy like with a deformed face, but like my, but then I had like this handsome exterior suddenly. So I had to sort of like live up to it. And I, right. It took me a long time to sort of get used to it. And then within like, you know, that was in 1986 and 85. And then within, you know, five years, I was starring in a movie. So did you not believe you looked like you looked after no. the changes? It took a really long time. I would walk down the streets in New York and I would see myself in the reflections. And like, of who's that? Yeah. Or I'd like, I mean, he's cute. It'd be like, right. me. Oh. <laughs> so in a way, I'm thinking that's kind of like um, Parker's role in... That's movie, very right? similar. Yeah. yeah, that's where that comes from in the yeah. script. Yeah, is it, is that where it came from? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The people that relate to what that experience is like is like because not a lot of people have had their their faces changed, right, or their jaws. But people that have had a lot of weight and then lost it through you know surgery, or whatever, they tend to be the people that understand what that's like the most because their identity is your ego so sort of still a fat brain basically. Yeah, yeah you still yeah. see yourself the same way, and it yeah. takes a long time to, to for that to shift. Can you even say fat? Is that a bad word? No. I don't know, but we get canceled. I don't, I don't know. No, we don't, we all get canceled, but they may send hate mail. What's it called? What's what's it called now? If it's not, well, you could be obese, but I, is that that sounds uh, bad too to me? <laughs> I don't get whatever. I don't like obese. Well, huh. So if you haven't watched the movie yet, they're not giving away that much. But she's a comedian that was very overweight, loses all the weight. She's really thin, but she yeah. Her, but her act, her act when she's doing the comedy act is all the fat jokes. Yeah, because like that was she, her best so material. She goes like talking about eating and all this stuff, and you're looking at her, and she's thin, and like this makes no sense. She <laughs>, laughs at her own jokes, which are not funny to anybody. Else. They're not funny. They're really bad jokes. But in, when she's off stage, she's hysterical. She's like, right? She's like her 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 jokes in real life are hysterical, but just not when oh, she's really? on stage. Wow. Yeah, the character. Mm. All right, so you got your face change. Yeah, so I, you know, when I was dating, suddenly I, I that's my last virginity. Finally, when I was nineteen, 
And I, I was just very, um, I was just so insecure and so at such low self-esteem because I'd grown up. I had to, I had to, and then I was in this movie and it was like very beautifully shot, black and white close-ups. And I know I was up for all these, for these awards. And, and that's when you're talking. Yeah. And yeah. It, my success came very young and, mm-hmm. and it was looking back on it now, I can see why it was a lot to handle. Cause I also had like a new base <laughs> that was also like on screen and, and I was, I was having, when you're an actor, I think most people on some level feel a little bit like an imposter in, you know, in their success. But I really had that badly because I felt like it was just like my face was like this mask I had put on. It wasn't really me. It's not really me. Yeah. Yeah. And now I don't feel that way. But I, but it took a long time to sort of, you know, now when you do that stuff, like when you have um, gastric bypass or whatever, they, you have to go to therapy, I think. I mean, they, they actually like, that's part of the recovery is like a psychological. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it's, there's a component to that. But back then it was like, just change the space and throw them out in the world. <laughs> Let's see what happens. So, you know, that was, it's a different time now and back then. Let's bounce back to Adam and Steve for a minute. So I was like super impressed with, impressed with that dance scene. Oh, thank you. Because my, my second partner always had me two-stepping. I would never lie and dance. I couldn't follow all that stuff. But I, I did enjoy the two-stepping. But you guys were really good. Thank you. Now, now Malcolm, who's your, who plays with you, now he he he's a dancer, isn't he? Yeah, he's like a he's like a musical theater star. Like yeah. he's been on Broadway, and you know he's 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 naturally just gifted that way. Like he was incredible. And that's Malcolm Getz. Malcolm Getz, yeah. I don't know. So he didn't have that much trouble with that, right? No, he was but sort of had yeah. you danced. No, never, no, no. I I I used to go to this place called the Big Apple Ranch in New York, which is like a which is like an oil can Harry's kind of right, place. Right. And um and I would and I loved going there because it was so wholesome in a way. And it was like and also it was a couples and it's a great place to go on a date. And and so I, I just I used to go there with Parker actually. We would go so and had country dancing there. It was all about that. Oh, it was just it. it was just a gay and lesbian country western night and two stepping night. And it was in a big loft in Chelsea in New York. It's I think it's still going on actually. Wow, cool. And um and so um I think every Saturday, and I'm not sure what night it was, but we would go there with your friends. They, they had like a punch bowl, like chips and, you know, like and salsa. And it was just was super, super like fun, good, clean fun, you know. And and so I would watch the dancers there and they were so good, but I never, I could barely two-step. And then, um, so when we came, I put it in the movie. Well, um, you wrote the movie, so you put yeah, that in there. Yeah. What made you put that in there when you couldn't dance? Because I just seemed like a, <laughs> because I had, I had gone, there were moments when I would get asked to dance there and I would go up some hot guy who was really good at it and I would be like stepping on his feet. And so you'd be following, trying to go backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Step. Yeah. And I really wanted to, there Stepping. Were, yeah, they had, <laughs> they had classes, but I didn't take that. I didn't take the classes, but, but um, I just thought like, that's such a great, it's such a world that we haven't seen before. And that's a great thing to put in a movie, you know, just is so not. And also like, it's so weird because Brokeback Mountain came out the same time that our movie came out. So it, it was sort of like this interesting little, little burp heck. Kind now, of who, who was your choreographer for that? Troy Christian, who and is... I, and I watched the movie, and I watched all of the extras that were in uh-huh. there. So it showed him doing that. He's That's so what I'm good. talking about. Yeah. It's like he's up there, and he's going, you do this and this, you're going to twirl this, and da 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 yeah. And everybody's going, yeah, 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 all these dancers. And then they all do it. It's like, I mean, it's, I'm so... <laughs> I'm so... My, one of my friends was... Uh, Close friends is Carlton Wilborn, who was in Truth or Dare. He's one of Madonna's backup dancers. Uh huh. And he would come over to my house like in the early nineties. We did a movie called Grief together with Jackie Beat and Leona Douglas, and 
And he would just come over to my house and, and just like push the coffee table aside and just do this insane dancing in my living room. And I would just sit there and just be like in awe of it. I'm right. so in awe of dancers, I think. Because I, I can't do it, you know. But the movies, the getting to do it in the movies like push fulfillment. But I I was so, you know, I couldn't barely get by. But but these guys are, I think it's such a brilliant talent. Can't, can't do it. But I'm taking so in, tap dancing classes now though. But Tap dancing? Yeah. Go back to the country stuff that's hot <laughs> of all of all the country stuff shadow dancing that that's the one wait what is shadow dancing? you have it in your movie come on it's where the two guys are facing the same way and one's behind the other one with his arm oh yeah yeah okay. yeah that, I know that's, that's, that's yeah the hottest. that's the hot and they'd sort of duck dip yeah, down yeah, and yeah know. that's very sexy yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that that's pretty wild very urban cowboy for how long did you film the dance sequence with you not knowing anything well, the dance sequence was supposed to be shot in two days, and we shot it in one day. We lost our location the second day, so we wow. had to shoot the whole thing in one day. And there's a lot of coverage in that. In that, yeah. so we just like you know, since I was directing it and also dancing, I mean, it was it was so I had to you know that movie had to rely on everybody else. You know, Troy directed that scene basically, and I had a really good AD, my friend Dustin, and I had like you know, I just have like really good people AD. around, assistant director. Okay, and so. Whenever I was, you know, the, the dance was, um, well, I wasn't supposed to direct the movie. I stepped in like, you know, a few weeks before we we're going to start shooting. And so um, I had to like also learn dance rehearsals while I was shot listening and getting ready to, to make the movie. And so um, that sequence, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoy it. But when I watch it, all I, all I can think about is how terrified it was <laughs> and how stressful it was. And I, and I remember after it was over, I went to um we I went out to dinner with Parker and and Dustin the AD and and we went to like a I was like, I was at a, I think we we're at um restaurant Silver Lake and I had a, I had like a you know chicken breast stick or something and I and I actually sat at the table and I cried it was the first really? time I cried I cried from stress from the wow stress of all of it but I was very um there was a lot of pressure you know and 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 now I don't I, when I watch it I I don't. You know, I'm I'm so happy that it turned out so well, and it's like on YouTube, and people still it's like right. become this thing. But um, it's mostly when I watch it, I just think about how amazing trick trick now, now that last flip, you had a stunt. Done. I did not do that. No, <laughs> <laughs> the hair was a little different. I could. Tell. Yeah, no, I wanted it to look fake. Actually, I wanted, you did. Yeah, like an airplane. Like I wanted it to look like <laughs> just the stunt. And then it cuts to I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah. Do you still see your co-star, Malcolm? Yeah. Um, we zoom a lot. He's in New York, so we zoom quite a bit. Um, and and you're actually in the process of putting a sequel together. Yes, correct? we are. Yeah. What's the name of that? It's called Adam and Steve Fifty Five Plus. Whoa. Um, it takes place in Palm Springs. Wait, are you still dancing or not? I'm tap dancing. You're tap dancing. Yeah, there's a tap dancing oh. number in it. What? You don't want to like tap dancing? No, I like country. Have you ever seen Gene Kelly really go at? I mean, he's yeah, like yeah. incredible. Like. That's not easy either. It's like hard. It's like really a So does Malcolm tap dance as well. Yeah, he does. You're, so you're both tap dancing in this. I don't know yet how it's going to play out. It might be like, I'm not sure it's going to be between Steve and Adam or if it's going to be between Adam and like the man he's just trying to steal Steve away. So I'm not sure yet. He's but trying to what? Steal Steve away. And there's, that's what we're working on in the script. But, oh, but so it, they're not together? Well, they're, they open up their marriage in the sequel. Oh, so it's about opening up. They moved to Palm Springs and they tried to. How contemporary. 
But it's, so it's about, you know, like when you write a movie, you have to think about conflict. There's right. no story without conflict. So that's, that's the sort of, and so it's something is that, that, is that an open or is it a throuple? There's have that. You got, or have you got to that. Or are you going to do the throuple thing too? Yeah. We're going to see how that goes. I mean, it's just, it, I actually never done this. I've never been in an open marriage or relationship marriage. So I'm writing about something that I don't know much about, but I'm, but I'm, that's the best way to write. Cause you're like, I'm going to learn. I mean, I'm listening. Why, why are you putting that in there? Because it's something that I think a lot of couples that have been together for 20 years deal with. And I, it's something that, you know, I think it's, it's very unique in some ways to gay culture and to gay, to gay men. Is that sort of, well, we're going to do this. Or are we not going to do it after a while? So I, I've never done it. I've only been a serial monogamist and I don't know if I could do it, but I, but I'm exploring that in the writing of it, seeing how I feel about it. Well, with my photography and the podcast, plus my friends, I've, I've been exposed to a lot of troubles. Have you ever been, okay. So, and I've never done anything. Like, I haven't been on that. You've never been in a throuple? I've never been in a throuple. I'm sorry. Really? No. No. Well, but night is young. So, so a throuple, if you're <laughs> listening and don't, ever, you could probably figure it out, throuple three. So it's three people in a couple throuple thing. But normally what happens is guys have been together, like in your case, in this story, 20 years. Yeah. Then they get a little bored or whatever. So they decided to bring in somebody else. Yeah. Somebody else is usually younger. Yeah. This younger. Is, now I'm talking real life yeah. experience. <laughs> I mean, people telling me these stories, right. guys. Right. So they bring in the younger guy. Now the younger guy normally does not like the two older guys equally as well. It's, it always, so it's three guys are terrible. He yeah. gravitates toward one. And then often, the one he gravitates to and the younger guy right off into the sunset and the other guy's left there, you know, with all the dirty dishes in the sink. I, <laughs> I hate three ways. It always ends in tears for someone. Yeah. You know, one person, it always ends in tears. So your movie's going to end, you're going to have a tearful ending. Is that what you're saying? You're <laughs> well, it was for one of them, because someone, it's natural for two people to connect and then someone feels left out and it doesn't matter how cool you're being about it. It's still like no fun to be, not be the one that gets picked. So yeah, you, you could have whoever leaves with the younger guy could then come back and say he can't he doesn't know anything about all these tv shows that i watched when i was a kid and i can't stand it and i want you back oh yeah because you don't want to play <laughs> trivial pursuit with someone younger than you <laughs> yeah or like wow. games like celebrity i don't even know who's famous anymore and mm -hmm. i'm so out of touch with like what's going on so when are you gonna start filming oh well the movie the first movie came out in 2005 so we wanted to come this one to come out in 2025 which is the 20th anniversary so that means I'm writing it now. It would have to be shot next year to come out in 2025. So okay. we're filming next summer, probably. And where are you filming that? Palm Springs. All right. Yeah. It's all about Palm Springs. Can I be in it? Yes, I'd be in it. You, you can't. <laughs> what, you want to be in the throuple? No. Nobody <laughs> wants me in the throuple, honey. <laughs> well, you never know. I mean, it's like, I don't uh -huh. even say that. Don't say well, that about yourself. What do they call extras? There's another name for them. What, Feature, they're featured extras. There's, um, they're day players. Okay. Um, um, there's like, there's are you like going to have people you going to have a AI generated fake people? What no, you? no, no, AI. Yeah, no, we people. can't afford, we can't afford AI, please. Really? We barely afford, we can barely afford like I. Do you think the strike will be over by, uh, next year? Um, I think so. probably by April. I'm thinking that's what it, that's, that's the word on the street I've heard, but, oh. but I don't know. I, I, I want to have lots of cameos in the movie. I want the movie to be very Palm Springs. So like, right. you know, Lonnie Anderson, Suzanne Summers, like, all, who else lives here that's like that's like that? Like um Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow for sure. Of course Barry Manilow, yeah. I think Bob Hope is still here. He's not really dead. 
Bob Hope. <laughs> is he like Elvis now? He's just like yeah, Elvis. And, yeah, they're, some of, they're actually dating now. They're oh, really? Actually, <laughs> they became gay. And now they're they're really but that kind of on the down right. low and right, right, right. They sense they're both right. supposed to be dead. They're right, 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 right. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, I want I want to make it really palm spring. I want to really. I, I mean, I love I love living here, so I want to make it look like. What, I want to capture. What year did you move here? I moved here in 2020. In June of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. Right in the middle of it. Yeah. Good timing. Yeah. Terrible. Huh. All right. So you're writing a third book. I'm writing a third book. I'm writing another memoir right now. And what's that about? It's about when I was homeless in 2019. I lived in my car. And it's about the events. It's around, It's really about my crystal meth struggles with crystal meth. Um, so I'm in recovery. I think we're missing a few facts here. <laughs> well, I was, I've oh, been, let me push the rewind button. <laughs> okay, let's pick up some. No, I've been like, I mean, I, 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 it's, it's, I hate, I don't like addiction memoirs, so I, I'm not calling it that because I don't like them. Because this is, I think, a lot more funny than that, than what that conjures up. Because I'm, I'm, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been in recovery for since 2002. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and addict, and, and I'm very open about it. And Adam so, Steve is also. So I was going to say, so Adam and Steve, so he has a problem and he's in recovery. Yeah. So is that from self? Your that's that's story? very autobiographical. Okay, yeah. It is. Okay. And it's something that I wanted to show too, because it's, it's, I wrote that for the first movie when I was recovering, when I first got sober in 2002. Okay. And so I was counting days in AA and I was sort of just like doing, writing the script to have something to do. Right. And so when the movie, so I just put it, it just happened organically to be in the script. But I, I think that's something that like, I didn't think that much about it, but now to this day, like I have other guys that are in recovery saying, I love that movie because there's a guy in recovery that's gay. And right. and it's something that you don't see that much of. You see a lot of like the opposite and like the problem, but you don't see the solution that much. So I love that that's, that people like that about it. So Adam is still sober in this, in the sequel. He's got like 20 years sober, but I don't Wait, want to. But you weren't. So you were sober, you were right. I was, I was sober for, well, I was, I was in the program for 14 or 15 years, and then I relapsed. I'm really just a very cliche person. <laughs> I relapsed, and then I and then one thing, that thing happened after the other, and then I I wound up like, you know, losing everything and living in my car for, you know, like Jewel. For like, wow. for like you know, but not as cute. Um, in, in the summer of um, 2019. And then that I'll was- some big event that- so well, I ran out of money. Out in motion. <laughs> that would do it. I mean, I ran out of money, which is, you know, when people like, it seems so simple, but like people become homeless because they run out of money. If you have, it's, I mean, you know, drugs and alcohol and mental illness can play a part in it because they can hamper your response to the situation. Like you don't, you're not maybe responding well to right. it. Right. But when people become homeless, it's because they run out of money. There's really no other reason for it. Because if you can be an addict and be rich and never have that happen to you, and you can be a fall down drunk, chunky, whatever, if you've got money, you won't ever become homeless. So it's it's not really it's you know homeless as long as you keep some of the money. If you totally blow everything, then there you are. Well, yeah, I mean, if yeah. you if you're especially if you're freelance and you're not right. if you're not continuing to make money, but but homelessness is like the solution to homelessness is a home. And the solution to like, you know, addiction and alcoholism is recovery or like this abstinence. So they get conflated a lot, which is a really easy thing to do. And it's understandable because they do, they are kissing cousins. But like, it's the thing that I've learned. So I have friends who, who were, have the same exact story as me. They were, they were sober for 14, 15 years, 
They relapsed. They had the same exact things, but they didn't become homeless. They had a safety net and whatever that prevented that. So it's, I try to keep it set. I, it's, they're both part of my story. And there's a lot of, when I, went to, when I first got um, housed and I was you know dealing with this, I thought I just had the worst life in the world and all these horrible things happened to me. And then when I went to CMA and went to start going to Crystal Meth Anonymous, I started hearing like, like half of the guys there lived in their car. And it, it, it is it is related to like the cliche of like the gay guy who relapsed, who loses everything on meth. So I do understand that. The solution is a home. You know, the solution is like, is a home when you don't right. have a home. So I try to keep it really simple, you know, and it, it could, it's a ball of twine that could feel very complicated. So, you know, and I, and I was housed first before I got sober. I had to get housed. But for me, I couldn't get sober. I didn't have a place, safe place to sleep or lock the doors behind me. And when you're living in a car, you're just, you're just, you're so traumatized by what's going on. You're not like, huh, I think I'm going to sit down and do my step work today. <laughs> like, right. You just don't have the bandwidth. You're just, right. you're just completely like, where do I go to the bathroom? That's all you think about all day long. Right. So, so a lot of fear-based stuff going on in your head. Yeah. And there's a lot of expectations that are unrealistic of you, like get it together. You know, and you know, I was so naive to the subject. I really didn't know anything about homelessness. I, I saw homeless people, you know, on few blocks from my house, which where I wound up actually hanging out eventually, but it just didn't interest me intellectually. It was like, I had other causes that I was into, you know? And so this thing happened to me and it opened my eyes to it. But, but also I, I, it wasn't until I got into CMA that I realized that this is some such like such a thing. It's like a thing that happens to gay men that are doing this drug. And so the thing about crystal meth is that it's like, it's a mystery to most people because most people have never done it. It's not like Coke in college or whatever. So people, it's very mysterious. People just see Breaking Bad and they're scary. It's scary. But it's a mystery to people that have never tried it, but it's also a mystery to the people that are abusing it. Right. Like I didn't understand the impact it was having on me and in, and how it impacted me psychologically and how long it took for me to, my brain to shift back to normal. Even after I stopped and got sober like a year ago, it took like six months to not be kind of crazy. you know. And, and that's something that I didn't know until I started going to meetings and heard other guys talking about it. So that's that's what my book's about. I had I have a friend that uh, actually did counseling on that, and he, he I didn't know this, but he said for some people they try it one time and they're hooked. That's it. Oops. Yeah, I, I I the first time I tried it was like in 1993, I think. Okay. When I was when I didn't and it had no stigma, so it was it was before Faces of Math and before any of that stuff. It was right. like it had no it had no. It wasn't bad at the time. It wasn't. It was like this new thing, and someone had it, and they offered it to me. And um, and I do think that like I don't think I was ever the same after that. And my whole life has been sort of this dance. I mean, I was sober for a very long time, and and that's when most of my success happened. When it was on true blood, all that stuff was when I was I was in in A for fourteen years, fifteen years. What made you take it the first time again when you relapsed? I was with the what? hot. Oh, when when I relapsed? Yeah. Why did you do it? Um, I was uh, I was, so it. It's not what people think. It wasn't like a conscious choice. What happens, it happens really slowly. Okay. So like, it's sort of like when a train leaves the station, it's going slowly and you don't really, re- and by the time I realized that I was on a train, it was going hundred miles an hour. I right. take it off. In 19, in 2005, no, sorry, 2015, I had a, I had a cardiac event. I was working late at night on this HBO movie I was writing like three in the morning and uh, in Hell's Kitchen. And I had like a, I had a, I had a, like not a heart attack, but a cardiac event. I had I had I had found I had AFib, arterial fibrillation. So I, I walked my dog. I came to the kitchen. I fainted. I wound up. I don't really remember, but I got in a cab. I went to the hospital, 
And they're like, you're having a cardiac event, a doctor's face dropped, there was all this commotion and everything going on. So for six months I had to, and so I went to see this cardiologist that, that a friend of mine got me into, the best one in Manhattan. And he said, um, and at the time I had a lot going on in my career. I had like three projects in development. I just, I had so much going on. I was such a workaholic at the time, but I was sober for many years. And so I just was really, really pushing myself. So anyway, the cardiologist said to me, you know, you should have a glass of wine with dinner. You're stressed out because this was a stress-related, you know, cardiac event. Did he know you were in recovery when he- Yeah. Recovery? And so I said, I said to him, I don't drink. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's been like a long time. And so he's like, well, then you should meditate or try something like, you know, and I, and he's like, you need to you need to slow down. I'm like, I can't do that. I work in television. It doesn't work that way. They don't care about my feelings or if I'm stressed. It's sort of right. hard. That's the industry standard. Boom. Do it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and at the time I remember thinking like, I, I didn't even want to entertain that idea because I worked so hard to get to where I was at. So I went to- um. So, but that planted the seed for, for six months. I had to wear this Fitbit thing on my chest that monitored my heart rate at Cedar Sinai. I came back to LA to work on a TV show, and um, and so for six months I thought about it. I was like, you know, I, I was, I haven't had a glass of wine in fifteen years. It was so, so long ago. I'll I was so wine. much younger. Wine yeah, won't hurt. exactly. I, and yeah. then so I was at a steakhouse, and I had I had my first glass of wine, and that was a conscious choice. And I never left AA. I was never like screw these people, and you know, I, I was never like that. I always loved AA. And recovery, I just drifted away, got really busy. And so it snuck up on me. So I had a glass of wine and nothing bad happened. And and then like over the course of that year, I was also dating someone who was in moderation management. He drank successfully. So I thought maybe I can do it was this sort of perfect storm of like it didn't feel like bad at the time. Right. But then slowly, like slowly, slowly, slowly. And then I was in a situation with a guy who had crystal math. And again, this by then it had been like a year or something, maybe more, since I started from drinking alcohol and I never really had a bad problem with alcohol. But, um, and then that was like, well, you know, that was so long. I mean, same exact thing. And by then I was already so far away from like my recovery sobriety that like, well, I'm not sober anyway. So, um, ABC alcohol becomes crystal. That's one of the slogans in CMA, but so that's why I don't drink today. But that was, um, it just happened really slowly. And then even when I, when I relapsed on crystal, it wasn't terrible at first. It was, you know, I did it on the weekends, once in a while. And, and it just, the whole thing happened very slowly and very, it was very, it's kind of crept up on me. And and so right. I understand it now. And I, I, but it took me, you know, it was really hard to get back and get out of it. So from the first time you took the crystal meth to your car, what kind of time frame was it? A year. A year. So it took a year. Maybe a year. It, so you lost work because of that or? It's, it's, it's kind of a complicated story, but I, I was also taking Valium when I was when I was working in television, and which was I took it as prescribed. And then when I went off Valium, I had like rebound. I had terrible withdrawal from it, like benzodiazepine withdrawal. So um, I wound up losing a job as a result of that, and I went to rehab to, to be safely detoxed off of benzodiazepine. And then um, I uh, I had this thing called post acute post acute withdrawal syndrome from that benzo. I don't take any of that stuff now, but I was on Valium for like nine years. I took wow. it as prescribed every day. I just took it with my other medications. And looking back on it now, I'm just like, that's so crazy. But I, but I, it just was like one of my medications I took. I took Seroquel. I mean, I'm sorry, I took um, Lexapro as well. So just whatever. I did my, my shrink prescribed it. I saw him every week and, and it was fine. But I went off it too fast and, and I had rebound, uh, terrible rebound, um, horrible, horrible withdrawal from it. And so that was really when I, my going off of Valium is what just kind of disabled me for a year. Gotcha. And then the, the crystal meth came in once I started losing things, like losing this, losing that, losing jobs, losing 
once I started losing things, I had less of an impetus, impetus to like try, keep trying. Right. I, I finally relapsed in crystal and I, and by that point I didn't have, I didn't care as much anymore. It was sort of just like, well, fuck it. Just had a case of the fuck it. And I, right. and so I lost my house in July and June of 2019. And I, it happened really quickly. It was like, I was running out of money. I hadn't worked in a year and the ceiling in my collapse, my house collapsed. Like there was a water pipe that burst in the ceiling and the whole thing came down. And um, I, and I confronted the landlord. Then they came to fix it. They found out there was asbestos in the air ducts that was dangerous. And oh, when I moved in, I asked the lady, is there asbestos in here? And she said, no, the landlady. And she said, no. And so I confronted her. And I was like, you lied. There's asbestos here. I've been living there for eight years and it was in the air ducts. And my doctor was like, it's going to send me to a pulmonologist. She was, doctor was freaking out, was sending me to a pulmonologist, this whole thing. I confronted her. And then like three days later, there was an eviction notice on my door. She tried to get rid of me because she didn't want to put me in a hotel and pay for all that stuff while they repaired the asbestos. So I just, I was, that was really a situation that was like, that set the stage for. Right. So it was, it was a series of things. It's actually homeless people. This is how you become homeless. Usually three things, an illness. Usually for most people, it's an illness that we can't work living off savings combined with like the fact that you are also from a family that doesn't have money, a poor family or that, and that your friends and your family, your friends are maybe mad at you or lost touch or whatever. So those three things are usually, I know this now, I thought I, this is so unusual, but it actually very, is very common that what happened to me. Right. And so I, I wound up having to move out of my house and really quickly. And I got this place across the street that I was going to move into it um, fell apart the night before the movers came to move me across the street. I got the easiest place to move in the world. Right. And uh, so the, that fell apart and then I had nowhere to go. So I put my stuff in storage in Hollywood and uh, and it was like looking for apartments, places to move. And like the third day after I lost my house, I tripped in a parking lot and I settled on the parking lot in Hollywood and I broke my right foot in three places. My, my I forget which, um, like the big bone on the right side of my foot right. broke. So now I was in, I had, was in crutches. I had a cast. I drove myself to Cedars with my left foot. I couldn't get in. Then I went to Providence Hospital. They finally saw me. And uh, I had to get like a roommate. So it just it was like, it was these series of events that happened right. that, that happened really quickly. And suddenly I was like in my car with my dog with nowhere to go. I couldn't walk. I couldn't push, I could push the gas pedal with my, with my, I had a boot on. But it was just like, I was, I was sort of like, it was a series of events that happened, this right. perfect storm. Right. And so then you become like this liability. So like, I have a dog. Like, it's hard. It's not, don't feel pressured to take someone in, in that situation. Also, I was not in AA. I was not sober. So I was, people didn't know what they were going to be getting with me. I had an old dog. I was on crutches. I mean, it was, I was like, not someone to be like, hey, come on over and hang out. We'll watch Netflix. Right. Like, it was a lot going on. So I right. understand right. what was going on. But it, it was, um. It was just this perfect storm of, of craziness, you know, and I'm lucky that I survived it. It's really hard to get out of. Right. And, and that lasted six months, you said? Yeah. It was from like June to like, yeah, to like um, all summer and then into fall. Wow. Well, glad you got out of it. Thank you. <laughs> so Thank when, you. when we get to the point of wrapping this up, I always ask my guest, what are some life lessons you had, like, what are some things you've learned in your life that you could pass on to my listeners? No man is an island. Okay. Um, every, but we need each other as annoying as that may sound. And it's a bummer. <laughs> right. How, what, what, um, it's such a, it's so not kind of 
popular right now, but I think I think that a lot of our problems are caused from this this disconnection we have with each other and technology. And, and I just think that I've learned that we really people need other people, and and that's in it. I also need other people to get better. I, right. I need to be of service to other people and help them. And it's it's that's what I would say is immense an island. Good thoughts in bed. <laughs> just so. <joking. laughs> Uh oh, Craig! Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Great seeing you. We've you've been to a couple parties at my house, but we never really talked. You have the best parties. You have I do parties. Cool. All right. Well, thank thank you again. Thanks, Wilkins.